Wintrust Business Lunch. There's Ted Rossman, the Senior Industry Analyst at Bankrate and Bankrate.com. Hi, Ted. Welcome back. Hi. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about credit card rates. Where are we today? What's the trend right now, Ted? The average right now is 20.74%, which is the highest we've ever seen in about 40 years of tracking. Two years ago, 2022, credit card rates jumped more than any other year on record. 2023 wasn't far behind. Because of all these Fed rate hikes, the typical credit card borrower is facing a rate now that's five and a quarter points higher than it was at the beginning of 2022. So there's really been a cumulative effect to all of this, I would say. How does the Fed raising rates or lowering rates or keeping them even, how does the action of the Fed affect these major card issuers? How how is it that it's now 20 plus percent as a result for them? It's really a direct pass through. And that was instituted back when the Card Act took effect in 2010. Basically, it limited card issuers' ability to change rates at will. But when they tie in with an underlying index, then they can just pass that through. So that's what almost all of them did. They tied in with the prime rate, which is three points higher than what the Fed sets. And then they tack on a profit margin to that. It's often something like 12%. And then that's the rate. What's especially interesting about this is that it affects new and existing balances. So when the Fed has been raising rates, people are being charged more interest, not just on new credit card purchases, but even on their existing debt. So that's an unfortunate consequence of the way this is all structured. Mm -hmm. Now, we think this year rates are going to come down a little bit. I would argue, though, it's not going to be enough to make a difference because, you know, let's say the Fed lowers rates by three quarters of a point. That was their projection at the last meeting. I know it's written in pencil, but if we go with that, credit card rates could still be right around 20 percent by the end of the year. So I I would argue it almost doesn't matter if it's 19 percent or 20 or 21. They're all high. So it's really important to pay in full if you can or or if you need more time, maybe use a payoff strategy like signing up for a 0% balance transfer card. I don't know how credit card companies work, but American Express or Chase Manhattan, whatever, in order to lend money, they have to borrow money at the existing rate plus those extra tiers you talked about and a 12% markup for their profit. I thought maybe they were lending their own money and that they weren't subject to maybe the vagaries of interest rates. It was their money. That's not the case, huh? The cost of funds is interesting. You know, sometimes it's securitized in the debt markets. Um, Sometimes these loans are financed by the deposits that banks are are taking in. Credit cards are a very profitable business. I think this has been a real bright spot for banks over the past couple of years, because even as they've lamented having to pay higher rates on savings, well, for one, a lot of the big banks haven't really raised savings rates all that much. Um, But another part of their business that hasn't been doing as well are uh, mortgage lending, because there's, um, you know, obviously been much higher rates there, much less activity on the housing front. Um, Credit cards, meantime, have quietly been holding up quite well because, you know, it's a very profitable business. People have been spending a lot. More people are carrying debt, but they're actually paying it back. That's a real key. The worry with credit cards and part of why rates are are so high is because there's a worry that you may skip out and not pay them and there's no collateral on the line like with a mortgage or or car loan. I mean, you're supposed to pay it back, of course, but 
Um, delinquencies have gone up, but banks don't seem too worried about it. Um, charge-offs are still relatively low. Um, so it's actually been kind of a, a sweet spot. More people carrying debt at higher rates, but actually paying it back. According to the bank rate survey that you all author, 49% of credit card holders carry a balance month to month. It was only 39% in 2021. Now it's about half of us. Sounds right? It does. And that backs up a lot of what I'm saying here about more people carrying more debt for longer periods of time, too. That was another key finding that among these people with credit card debt, 58% have had it at least a year. And that's up from 50% back in 2021. People often get into credit card debt for practical reasons, things like emergency expenses and day-to-day outpacing their paychecks. But it's a tough cycle to break. And that's where something like a 0% balance transfer card could really help you out because you move this existing debt over to a new card that won't charge interest for up to 21 months, like the Wells Fargo Reflect or City Simplicity. That can buy you a lot of time to pay down that debt. John Williams, I noticed when I paid my bill on my retailer credit card, it was 35%. That's insane. Folks need to take a home equity loan like David Hochberg recommends to pay off debt at 8% versus 35%. Um, Any thoughts about that, Ted? Home equity debt is not as cheap as it used to be. The average now is around 10%. That's another one that's jumped a lot because of the Fed's rate hikes. I do empathize with those store cards. I mean, yes, we did a study on that recently. We found dozens over 30%. The average was about 29 But, yeah, there are some really brutally high rates there. All of this reminds me of my favorite saying about credit cards, which is an industry saying that they can be like power tools, as in really useful or dangerous. And it's all about how you use them. For everybody who's getting rewards and buyer protections and life is great, there's somebody else who's paying a really high interest rate and is kind of trapped in this expensive cycle. Um, Besides the balance transfer, I wouldn't necessarily look to the home equity loan or line of credit next. I I think besides balance transfers, maybe working with a nonprofit credit counseling agency, somebody like Money Management International who can negotiate a 7 or 8% rate over four or five years and help you pay your debt back that way or or even just that self-discipline of upping your income through a side hustle or selling stuff you don't need or cutting your expenses and funneling the extra towards the credit card debt, that can be helpful as well. Ted Rossman, Senior Industry Analyst, Bankrate.com. Thank you, Ted. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. Here's Bree Fowler, Senior Writer at CNET. Thanks for joining us, Bree. How are you? Good. How's it going? Pretty good. If a computer generates an Elvis Presley knockoff song, but the Presley estate still owns the name, image, and likeness, there's talk right now about can your computer do that? Do those companies that generate the equivalent of conversation or monologues or songs from artists whose work is licensed, can they do that? There's a conversation about that right now, right? I think this is one of those things where people are trying to figure it out and they're also trying to figure out who can make money. 
um, you know, you can play around and do things for fun, but when people start, you know, uh, making money off of someone else's image or likeness, or in this case, voice, then it then it becomes an issue. Um, and this is something that they're they're taking up in Tennessee, Elvis's old uh, home state, um, trying to, you know, that the governor has introduced legislation, unveiled legislation that would. Ensure the AI tools can't replicate an artist's voice, and obviously it goes way behind, way beyond Elvis. There, um, you know, Nashville is the, the country music capital, and a lot of artists are worried that their their work is going to get knocked off. I don't know that you'd make money if you had AI or some sort of deep fake um, replicate Joe Biden or or Donald Trump's you know, image and have them say or do something terrible. I don't know that you'd make a lot of money on that, but you might score political points. You might help or hurt a campaign. Um, are there any protections or penalties along those lines? Not not really yet. Um, and we have seen um, not so much with politicians as far as making money, but, you know, there there was a small town dentist office that did a deep fake of Tom Hanks in endorsing them. And the latest thing is a Le Creuset uh, you know, those fancy pots and pans, there is a kind of a endorsement, fake endorsement from Taylor Swift for those. So, you know, that they stand to make some cash if people believe that kind of stuff. Every now and then we've been seeing these issuances from celebrities. Uh, President Josiah Bartlett from the West Wing had a <laughs> statement that his actually son-in-law put out saying uh, he is not endorsing that. Taylor Swift, what was the product? What am I thinking of? Um, it R, was it RFK Jr. event? Yeah. Uh, he said, I'm not endorsing RFK Jr. Um, mm. So just, uh, yeah, I guess that's a new wrinkle. Um, so the SEC has approved a Bitcoin ETF. Is that right? Yeah, actually 11 of them. Uh, these are the first exchange-traded funds that involve Bitcoins. And, you know, for people who don't know, ETFs are a way for people to invest in assets or groups of assets, you know, whether it's gold or junk bonds, or in this case, bitcoins, without directly having to buy them. Um, so, you know, you would go to your broker and have uh, him or her buy into one of these funds. Before, you know, the SEC has been, even now, they are not so jazzed about this. Um, Bitcoin is notoriously volatile and, you know, it, it's not currency. You know, people forget this is not real money. Um, so it, it's kind of hard to quantify. There's really very little regulation there, but this could be a way for, for people to kind of get in on the action. Man, I remember when that came out and people were buying it at point zero 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 something, and then it went up to a nickel and their percent increase was massive. Um, there was money to be made in the early days of cryptocurrencies. Are we still seeing those sorts of escalations? Yeah, um, you know, they, they go up and down, and it's not just Bitcoin. There are just countless um, cryptocurrencies out there. But, you know, because there is no regulation and because it is truly a free market, um, things go all over the place. Um, you know, a lot of people who kind of bought in during the Bitcoin craze have not made their money back. Uh, just after the, you know, the big drops we saw in the last couple of years. Mm. So, you know, it, it remains to be seen how these ETFs will do. And, you know, the SEC is worried that consumers may, you know, think that these investments are safer than they actually are. Well, that's probably true of the stock market or when you go to the horse track as well. Do you, <laughs> do you think there's still 
money to be made? I mean, is that if you if you're a betting man, would you put money in an uh, ETF, a Bitcoin ETF? Uh, you know, I am super. Uh, conservative about this kind of stuff. Um, I've just seen too many people lose their shirts in crypto. Um, you know, I had one uh, analyst tell me once, though, that, you know, just because something is a scam doesn't mean you can't make money off of it. So it's, <laughs> yes. it's just like yes. any kind of investment. You, you got to buy low and sell high. The, the trick is trying to figure out, you know, when those uh, peaks and valleys are going to happen. Google is laying off hundreds of employees. Where and why? Well, well, I mean, people are saying that this is to kind of, um, you know, uh, appease their investors. Uh, this is in hardware, voice assistance, engineering, uh, just general cost-cutting measures. And it's part of a bigger plan to shift to its main priorities and what it sees is its main upcoming opportunities. Um, it, this has been in the works for a while. Uh, it previously said it was going to lay off people, you know, things like augmented reality and hardware. And it's not the only company doing this either. Meta, which has, you know, Facebook and Instagram, they laid off uh, more than 20,000 people wow. in the past year. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and its stock price nearly doubled. <laughs> yeah. So that made investors happy. Um, earlier this week, Amazon also said it's going to lay off hundreds of employees in its prime video and studio units and about 500 people who work for Twitch, which is its streaming platform. Are there any projections about what's going to happen to X this year? Is it going to turn a profit anytime soon? Is it going to collapse? Is it any ideas about what the future for X is this year? You know, I, I think you probably should consult a magic eight ball with that because there's really no way to tell. Um, you know, every, we don't even know um, if the information that we've gotten from the company is actually accurate. I mean, it, it doesn't have to show us its books and Elon Musk is Elon. So, you know, <laughs> what, what we hear may not be accurate. Um, they have cut their staff so much over the past year. Um, and it's hard to believe it's been over a year now since uh, Elon Musk took over. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, all bets are off basically. Um, the thing is, is that he has the kind of cash where he could probably float this as long as he wants to in some form. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people just don't think it's worth their time anymore. Well, that was me, uh, but you know, that's a, that's an interesting debate. I don't have time for here with you today, but I know a lot of people who don't like him, don't like what has happened to the platform, but still find the platform very valuable. I think there's a lot of things in our life that we don't like a lot about it, but it's the best version of that I got, and you stay with it. Some of us have the luxury of being able to jump off, and other people are compelled to stay on. Sound about right to you? I mean, I guess. I just, I feel I reserve that for stuff like kale, you know, <laughs> that I don't particularly care for, but is good for me. Um, I don't really see X as being the, the kale of social media. Every time I go on there, I just don't really find a lot to draw my interest anymore. Um, I, you know, I used to be one of those people that doom scrolled a lot and yep. just, you know, red, red, red. And I just, I feel like it's a lot of ads. And there are ads that don't really, I don't really find relevant. And it's the same post from the same five people over and over again. That's Bree Fowler, senior writer at CNET. Always nice to talk to you, Bree. Let's keep doing this this year. 
Great to talk to you. Ray Kaplan joins us now on the Wintrust Business Lunch from the Kaplan Law Firm here in Chicago. She's our student debt expert. I want to ask you a little bit about student debt, but also about the FAFSA form today, because that's real important business for families. Hi, Ray. Welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks so much. Yeah, the new FAFSA launched, well, they're calling it a soft launch. Uh, So there are still some, probably a lot of um, tweaks that are going to need to be made to the process. And actually, I was just reading an article in Business Insider that the site has been crashing a bit. So people have been really trying to log in and haven't had any luck and they're really... um, the ones who were really serious about it stayed on for seven or eight to 10 hours trying to get on there. Oh. So hopefully that'll be fixed. By the way, nothing crashes a bit. If you crash, you crash. <laughs> uh, you know, our friend Terry Savage wrote an article about this, prepare for FAFSA headaches to what you are speaking now. The idea was that this free application for federal student aid, FAFSA, is supposed to be more streamlined, right? It's supposed to be easier to use. Correct, Ray? Mm-hmm. That's correct. So that's what they're they're trying to do. Um, I'm not sure if it's it's there yet, but I think a lot of the changes that they're making um, are going to ulti- ultimately lead to a more streamlined process. It also is going to lead to more information um, being transferred from the IRS to um, the Department of Ed. So when you're filling out FAFSA, you're signing also a a consent and an agreement to have your information from your tax returns transferred to the Department of Education as well. I love the sound of that. I mean, it just streamlines the process. You think it's the same federal government that's trying to maybe help me assess my eligibility for student aid that has my tax return. How about you guys tell each other what my numbers were and then... You don't have to rely on me, and I don't have to figure it out. And lo and behold, our government did that, right? Yes, that's correct. And I think it's a really good point because these departments are now starting to talk to each other more, communicate more, so that, for example, if there's a borrower who is disabled and receiving SSI benefits, now that information will go to a Department of Education, and then the Department of Education can issue automatically forgiveness of their federal student loans based on the fact that that person is disabled. So there is a lot about it that's going to wind up actually simplifying the process for a lot of borrowers. FAFSA is a form you fill out, and then how is that used um, for any student loans that you get? What's the purpose of it? Right, so FAFSA stands for Free Application for Student Aid. So the information in FAFSA is information about the parents and the student. And it's also going to be information if your parents are separated um, about potentially your step-parent if they're married. If one of your parents remarried, now the step-parent is going to be considered a contributor. So that income information is also going to go into the pot So FAFSA determines what the students themselves will be eligible for their own federal loans, work grants, and also any scholarships that schools determine together with the Department of Education what that student is going to be eligible for based on the information in FAFSA. And is the idea that the more income or assets that are behind the student on this FAFSA form, the 
less money they're going to get, the fewer loans That's they're going correct. to get, et cetera? That's correct. So they would be um, eligible for fewer grants and work-study programs and, and things like that. Um, they use a formula called the estimated rate of family contribution to make a determination of what that student will be eligible for. Um, and we don't actually know what that formula is because it's proprietary. Really? So, um, yes. So it's the, the best advice I can give to anyone who's filling out FAFSA is, is to basically just read the questions and answer them completely and don't um, overcomplicate it because basically the information is supposed to be about your parents' income and assets, and that's how they determine what the student will be eligible for. But even if the student doesn't qualify for that much in terms of federal loans, the parents can still take out federal parent plus loans to cover whatever is needed. So if the student only qualifies for 5,500, which is the usual amount that students qualify for, and tuition is say 30 or 40,000, the parents can take out federal parent plus loans to cover that 30,000 or so that was not covered by what the student received. But the FAFSA is not a loan per se. It's going to, it sounds like, give you some sort of score or dollar amount that it would relate to. And then when you go, what, shopping for a loan or looking for a scholarship? In fact, don't you have to have, in most cases, a FAFSA form filled out to even apply to some schools? Oh, absolutely, yes. So you, you do want to fill out FAFSA and you want to fill it out each year that you're going to attend college because um, that way the school can make a determination and maybe increase the amount of aid that you're eligible for. Okay, if you've got a question about this, maybe you've been dealing with this. I haven't been. (laughs) I did once upon a time. Uh, 312-981-7200 is the phone number. Uh, Speaking of student loans, though, here's where my family is. My sons have gone through college. My son finished graduate school a couple of years ago. Uh, fell into the pandemic then and hadn't had to pay. Um, Only recently then, did you help us transfer his loan, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right now, Ray, to the SAVE program, is that right? That's correct. So yes, your son was eligible for the new income-driven payment plan that was recently introduced. And I really like this plan because it reduces your payments quite a bit. Most people have their payments reduced by 40 or 50%. And it's a very low monthly payment, and it has a 100% interest subsidy. So interest accrues on the loans, but then it's waived quarterly. So it really is the same thing as having a 0% interest loan Mm. for the whole time that you're in save, which is really fantastic. That was a concern to us because um, his income has been low as an employee of the Chicago public school system, and it's the public school system. So he qualifies for some things that maybe he would not if he were in the private sector. But the form he got said, here's how much the loan amount has increased. And we thought, well, while we're not having to make payments or much of a payment, the, the, the ticker's running on this. This is a bad deal. You waved that concern off, right? You said, don't worry about that. Right. Don't worry about that because in his situation, as long as he stays employed for Chicago Public Schools or any not-for-profit for 120 months, and I think he's already got a few years under his belt, mm-hmm. um, after 120 payments, then you apply for public service loan forgiveness while you're still employed full-time in the public sector, and whatever your balance is, so any interest that has accrued, all that will be forgiven tax-free under public service loan forgiveness. So it's a really great deal. So 
for people like your son who um, have jobs in the public sector, they get to make really low monthly payments and then eventually get the balance forgiven. Okay, stay right there. You've got a question too. 312-981-7200. I think one question I'll ask Ray to answer when we get back is what happens if in that 10-year window they do quit the public sector and work in the private sector. Let's update you on a few other things, including this business report from Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. The head of Chicago's tourism arm, Choose Chicago, is stepping down. Lynn Osmond is resigning at the end of this month, saying she wants to focus her time and energy on a family health matter. Osmond is stepping down ahead of several big events for Chicago this year, including the Democratic National Convention. As she departs, Osmond says the city's tourism and hospital industry is on a positive path and in a strong position to continue post-pandemic growth. Rich Gamble will act as interim Choose Chicago CEO. United Airlines says it expects significant cancellations today involving its grounded fleet of 737 MAX 9 jets. It did not give a number of Thursday cancellations, but yesterday it canceled 167 flights. Alaska Airlines also canceled flights involving grounded aircraft through Saturday. Both airlines have discovered loose bolts on grounded aircraft. Last Friday, a door plug flew off an Alaska jet flying over Oregon, leaving a hole in the plane mid-flight. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Here's Steve Alexander with the business of food. Mm-hmm, thank you. And did you see this moment the other night? And the Golden Globe goes to... The Bear! Yes, the Italian beef dramedy set in Chicago picked up lead actor awards too, which made me wonder whether the success of the TV show is continuing to impact Chicago's Italian beef joints. It's definitely been significant. For one, we've seen a huge increase in nationwide shipping. Who he is after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, a while back, our friends at Block Club Chicago reported it is not unusual to see people coming directly from the airport, roller bags in tow, to Mr. Beef on Orleans. That's the model for the beef joint featured on the bear, and it continues to get a big bump in business from the show. And so are others, like Bona. We are. That's John Bonavolanto, part of the family that has operated Bona for more than 40 years, starting with a single location in Berwyn, 28 now, around Chicago. And he says the combination of the bear and Google has exposed Bona to the rest of the country. You know, so when people are searching in different states, they want to try it because they heard about it on the bear, right? They'll come across us and they'll get introduced to our product that way. And our beef is also in a lot of grocery stores throughout the country. And we've seen those sales tick up as well. And they're getting a lot of calls from people who'd like to open franchises in other states. Yeah, so uh, we're really looking for people that want to grow with us, that have the same values in business as us, that they want to take one of our brands, either Bona or the original Rainbow Cone or both, to their market and... You know, we'll probably get to 100 units nationwide over the next five years. So it's kind of humbling that so many people want to take our brand and, and grow it in different states with us. All right. John, one more thing. One of the most talked about episodes of The Bear was the Christmas show where the dysfunctional family gets together and all hell breaks loose. Was the Bonavolanto family Christmas like that? No, it's uh, it's a big family business, um, and we it's a lovely time. You know, we we, we relax, we have fun together. <laughs> From the farm to your belly, it's National Milk Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Talking to Ray Kaplan. From the Kaplan Law Firm, she's an expert on student loans and, as it turns out, the FAFSA form as well, which is new this year and is going kind of slowly. So many people are trying to get on 
Our friend Terry Savage wrote about that, too. A couple of questions from our listeners. Can you help us out here, Ray? Yeah, of course. Uh, let's go to uh, Donna. You're on WGN. Donna, what's your question for Ray Kaplan? Um, hi there. Thanks for taking my call. I was just curious to know if the FAFSA is exclusively for need-based loans or if it was, is required um, if they're looking for some sort of you know, academic-based uh, grants or scholarships. So that's a good question. Basically, FAFSA needs to be filled out if you are looking to receive any type of aid or grants federally or even from your school, because oftentimes the school will also use the information in FAFSA to determine what the student is eligible for. Okay, I think that's a, that's a yes then. 847 said, do you really have to still be employed in public service to get the public service loan forgiveness? What if you transfer out of a public loan job? Then what happens? A public job. So that's a great, that's a great question too. So right now there's an executive order, which you know I've been talking a lot about, John, which is that IDR account adjustment. And let's say that you were working for nine and a half years in the public sector and you left that job and then you went to work in the private sector. Well, now under this IPR account adjustment, if you go back to work in the public sector, even for those, you know, few months that you missed, um, let's say six months that you would need to get your loans forgiven, at this time what we can do is we can retroactively get you all that credit for public service loan forgiveness and say you left a couple months shy of when you got the loans forgiven, if you're able to, say, go get a job at the Salvation Army for a couple of months, we can submit that, and then you can get your loans forgiven. But in general, because this IDR account adjustment is going to expire at the end of April, so it's a really great opportunity for people who are close to loan forgiveness before but missed it for some reason, it's another shot at it. But what if but you have five general, years? What if you have five years to go and suddenly a better offer comes along in the private sector? Okay, so if you have years left and then you want to take that private sector job, that's fine. And what we can then do is public service loan forgiveness will be off the table. But then federal loans still get forgiven even if you work in the private sector. So for the private sector, if you have undergrad loans instead of ten years, it's twenty years. If they're plus loans, either graduate plus or parent plus, then it's 25 years. So what that basically means is that instead of having to pay for 10 years and getting your balance forgiven, you'll have to pay for 20 years and then get your balance forgiven or 25 years and get your balance forgiven. If there's still some balance left, but does the payment... Exactly. But since you're stretching it out for a longer period of time, presumably paying more on it, does the loan payment each month go down or does it stay the same? So it's going to depend. It's going to depend on what your income is and which tax return you want to use. So you want to be smart about it or strategic about it because it might be that we can keep your payments a little bit lower. So if your income went up, your higher income may not catch up to your payment for a year or two. And that way you'll get those years counting towards your loans being forgiven, even though they don't reflect your higher income Yes. It's amazing. So there are ways you can manage it. Right. It's, it's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. Ray knows all this stuff. You can find her company at financialrelief.com or call 312-294-8989. Thank you, Ray Kaplan. 
Thank you, John.